You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Uh, I invite you now to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We'll be looking at uh, Acts chapter 4 this morning. Uh, If you were here uh, at our service a few weeks ago, you'll know that I was in Acts chapter 4 when we were working through our mission statement. Um, This was, uh, uh, we were were focusing on what it means to be um, expecting the Spirit. And the verses that we're going to look at today are the verses that are uh, uh, immediately following that verse. So we're, for those who were able to be there, uh, this will be a familiar chapter to you. Um, as you know, we're here to celebrate Easter, which is all about uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, it, is, uh, it is perhaps the truth and the reality that we need most of all in times like this. Uh, we need to be reminded that um, as, as death encounters us, as death looks at us, um, as death is in the news, uh, we need to be reminded as Christians that death is not the end. Um, the analogy that Pastor Tim used in our preservers prayer, I thought was wonderful. Uh, death is really just kind of emerging out of the water and seeing um, the world as it as it truly is. We're we're all waiting for that moment when we can kind of emerge from the water and uh, and pop our heads out and see the beautiful sky and the creation that God has has made. Uh, we're we're waiting for true life, and uh, death for the Christian is just the the doorway to true life. And, uh, and for those who are not Christians who are part of this call, I, I want to welcome you to our service. And I, I just want to extend um, that, that message of hope to you. Um, the, the Easter story um, of Jesus dying and rising again and offering everlasting life uh, is not just for those who are born as Christians. It's not just for those who are, uh, you know, grew up in Western civilization. Uh, it's not just for those who are baptized into a particular church. It's for anyone who believes that Jesus died for their sins, uh, who rose again to offer us eternal life, not because we deserve it, but because it's a gift. It is a free gift. No one here was born a Christian, and no one on this call earned their way into becoming Christians. Uh, All of us have have merely received this offer of salvation as a free gift of God's grace. Easter Sunday is a remarkable time for us to remember and to celebrate and yet, as I was looking at my notes, I realized that I actually haven't preached on Easter Sunday since 2017. Uh, it's been three years. And uh, for those who have been part of Sovereign Grace, you'll know that uh, one of the reasons for this is over the past several years, we've been doing a joint uh, Good Friday, Easter Sunday weekend with the church that we were renting from, King Bible Church. Uh, every year, Pastor Mark from KBC and I would sit down together and talk about who would take on which responsibilities. And he would always want to take Easter Sunday, and uh, that worked well because I always wanted to take Good Friday. Um, I I love to preach the cross. And the reason why I love to preach the cross is because the early church loved to preach the cross. And as Timon reminded us in his sermon on Good Friday, um, Paul said, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. The cross is central to the message of the scriptures, to the heart of the gospel. I love preaching the cross. But the other reason why I think I love to preach the cross is because 
The, the cross provides me with what I need right now in my current season of life. As a, as a young man, um, what I struggle with is not the reality of my death or even the reality of the deaths of my loved ones. Um, it's, it's usually a struggling with the assurance of salvation or needing a reminder of God's love or needing to know that my sins are fully paid for. And I, and I find comfort for all of those needs in the cross. The empty tomb, however, on the other hand, the, the resurrection gives us comfort, uh, it seems, for, for the needs that I might have later on in my life when, when I'm sick and my body is racked with pain and I, I'm waiting for, for uh, Jesus to give me a new body in the resurrection um, or when a loved one dies or uh, when I'm near to the end of my life. The, the, the cross seems to meet my needs now. The resurrection seems to meet my needs later. And I wonder if, if perhaps you can relate to that. I wonder if, if you spend more time thanking God for uh, uh, sending Jesus to die, but not as much time thanking God for raising Jesus to life. Or perhaps you're actually the opposite, and you, you think a lot more about the resurrection and not very much about the crucifixion, because you're thinking uh, a lot more about uh, Christ's victory over death and not so much about Christ's victory over sin. But wherever you may land, uh, where we all need to land is to see the crucifixion and the resurrection as really two sides of the same coin. They don't make sense without the other. If Jesus had only risen, uh, sorry, if Jesus had only died on the cross, but had not risen from the dead, uh, we would have no hope because we would still be in our sins. It was the resurrection that proved that uh, Jesus' sacrifice for sins had been accepted by God that it was sufficient to pay our penalty. But on the other hand, if we only focus on the resurrection and not the cross, then we also have no hope because... Um, <clears throat> sorry, my wife's fixing my microphone. You can't hear me very well. Let me, get, let me try this. I just turned off the setting. Um, does, that, does that help you hear me better? Okay. All right. Uh, uh, thanks, honey. Um, where was I? If we only focus on the resurrection and not on the crucifixion, uh, then we may have the hope of, of life to come, but we don't have the hope of life with God to come. Because, again, uh, it was the cross that makes the way for us not only to live past this lifetime, but to live with God forever, having our sins forgiven. We, we need uh, the resurrection and we need the crucifixion for the gospel to be good news. And our text today is going to remind us of that. It's going to remind us of the centrality of the crucifixion and the resurrection um, to the life of the early church. But the other thing that our, our text is going to remind us of uh, this morning is that uh, these two events, the, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, had the effect of radically transforming people's lives so that the way that they live together in community uh, was far different from the way that others were living at the time. People were no longer living for themselves. They were living for Christ, and they were living for Christ's people. Uh, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection created a community of truth and love that we call the church, where each member of the church cares for one another, not only spiritually, but practically. And that's what we need in this era of COVID-19. We we need people who are going to pray for us. 
Uh, we need people who are going to speak the truths of Scripture to us, but we also need people who will be there for us when we lose our jobs and we don't qualify for the extended wage subsidy. We, we need people that we can turn to and say, say, can, can you support me in this time of need? Uh, we, we, we all will have moments in our lives when we are in need, and, and God will provide for us. We believe that, but one of the ways that God chooses to provide for us is through his people. So that's what we're going to see in our text today. So uh, let's read these verses together. We'll be in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. This is the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The title of this sermon is The Radical Community of the Risen Christ. The Radical Community of the Risen Christ. We're going to have three points today. Uh, first, unity. Second, generosity. And third, testimony. Unity, generosity, and testimony. Let's look at unity. Now, Acts 4, as many of you know, describes the church in its infancy. We're told in Acts 1 that the church began with a small number of people, actually not that much uh, different from the size of our gathering this morning. The church was about 120 people. Um, but in a very short period of time, those numbers ballooned to 5,000 people. In, in a mere number of days, uh, the church grew from being kind of a small collection of house churches to being almost like a mega church meeting regularly in the temple courtyards. Well, there are many reasons for, for the church's growth. Uh, the, the, the primary one, of course, being the movement of the Holy Spirit. This is nothing short of revival. But one of the other reasons is because of the faithful witness of the church to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, for example, in Peter's first sermon, uh, which he preaches in Acts chapter 2, um, this is shortly after the day of Pentecost, when um, the, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the believers and, and they're bearing witness now with newfound power to the truths of the gospel, Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In that same sermon later on in verse 32, uh, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Now, when Peter was finished that uh, first recorded sermon of his in the book of Acts, we're told that 3,000 people that very day, in one day, were baptized and became part of the church. Uh, it was Peter's faithful witness to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that uh, the Lord used to convict people and to bring them to repentance. Now, these 3,000 converts... We need to recognize, though they were, um, they were religious Jews, that most of them were actually not ethnic Jews. 
Uh, we're actually told that, that um, at the day of Pentecost, uh, there were thousands of people converging on Jerusalem to celebra- celebrate as part of the Passover celebrations. And these people were mostly non-Jewish Gentile people who had converted to the Jewish faith. And so again, we're told in Acts 2 um, that there were Parthians and Medes and and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, uh, Cretans and Arabians. And so when we picture the early church, we're meant to picture this this diversity of people from all different parts of the world responding to the gospel and becoming part of a new community of followers of Jesus. In Peter's second recorded sermon, um, that's in Acts chapter 3, we hear him testifying to the resurrection once more. You'll know if you have read Acts that that Peter had just uh, healed a lame beggar who had been begging daily at the gates of Jerusalem. He had just healed and and the And uh, then a multitude of people came to listen to him, and he preached this in Acts 3, verse 15. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Then again, in verse 26, in that same sermon, he says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, that sermon would land Peter in jail, but not before... Uh, his sermon had the effect of converting another few thousand people so that the church uh, had now grown to about 5,000 people, 120 people to 5,000 in a very short period of time. And most of those conversions were the result of Peter's faithful preaching of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, following Peter's imprisonment, he's brought before the Jewish council and they question him about his preaching and they try to intimidate him so that he won't talk about Jesus anymore. But but Peter, who is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, he's filled with boldness to keep preaching. He takes that as another opportunity to preach about the resurrection before the very people who are persecuting him. In Acts 4, verse 10, it says, uh, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now, it's within this context that we must read our text today. Uh, when we read in verse 32, that the full number of those who believed were gathering together, uh, we're, we're meant to picture this group of about 5,000 people from, from many different nations and languages and cultures, all being united by their common faith in Jesus Christ and belief in his resurrection. And when we read that they were of one heart and soul, were to see that the basis of their unity, the basis of their oneness, was the resurrected Christ. It wasn't Peter, as bold and as charismatic as he may have become. It wasn't the apostles. It wasn't merely a new set of teachings. The basis of their unity was the resurrected Christ himself. That's what brought the early church together. It was crucifixion and resurrection. It was Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The truths that we have spent time this weekend remembering and celebrating and declaring to one another are the very truths that brought the early church together in the first century. Now, these days, there are many who are trying to find a different basis for the unity of the church. 
they try to say that the church is all about social justice, or the church is all about racial reconciliation, or the church is all about gender equality, or the church is all about political reform. Now, not all of these things are bad. In fact, uh, there are probably lessons in each of those categories that the church can, can listen to and pay attention to, and perhaps commit ourselves to doing in, uh, in accordance with the scriptures. Um, but if we try to make any of these causes the basis of our unity as a church, uh, it's only a matter of time before the church stops being the church. It's only a matter of time before the church crumbles. The only foundation of the church must be Christ, Christ crucified and Christ risen from the dead. The, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection are the exclusive pillars of the church without which the church will crumble. Now, I once worked with someone uh, many years ago when I was uh, probably in early university. I was working uh, in the summers for my dad at his pharmacy. I worked with someone who, who's, who was a professing Christian, but who went to a very liberal church. In fact, it was the kind of church that would uh, read about the resurrection in the scriptures as a, as a metaphor for new life. Uh, they would deny the historical resurrection of Christ. And when I asked her why she chose that church, she said, well, I enjoy the fact that the people I sit beside on Sunday mornings don't believe the same things as me. My friends, that, that is not Christian unity. Christian unity doesn't strive to embrace a diversity of opinions. It strives for a unity of mind. There's nothing wrong with spending time with people who believe different things. In fact, the scriptures call us to love those who believe different things, to, to love them and to understand them and to try to, to, to share the gospel with them so that they would come to the same hope and faith and love that, that we have encountered in Christ. But, but let's not call that kind of meeting a church. That's not a church. The church is about a group of people who believe the same things, especially when it comes to the things of Christ, to his death, and to his resurrection. Now that's clear throughout the New Testament. First um, Corinthians 1 verse 10 says, Be united in the same mind. In Philippians 1 verse 27, With one mind, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. In Philippians 2 verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind. And lastly, First Peter, Finally, all of you have unity of mind. My friends, if we are going to imitate the church, if we are going to see this example that we see in the scriptures as the ideal uh, towards which we are striving towards, if we, if we want to be the kind of community that is of one heart and soul, we need to be of one mind when it comes to the things of Christ. We're not going to be one heart and soul just by trying harder. We're not going to be one heart and soul by devoting ourselves to some other social cause. The only way that we will be of one heart and one soul is by devoting ourselves and rallying ourselves around the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not to say that we're not going to have some differences. Uh, we will. Um, it's likely that um, we're never going to reach perfect doctrinal unity. And that's because we have fallible minds and we read the scriptures from fallible perspectives. But, but those differences don't have to divide us. And they won't divide us if Christ's death and resurrection remain of first importance, if they remain central 
to defining us as a community of faith. We can be a church that is of one heart and soul if our hearts and souls together belong to Jesus. And when we are united like this, something amazing happens. Our our oneness of faith leads to a oneness of love. As our unity around the, the central doctrines of Christ will it end up exploding into radical acts of generosity. And that's going to lead us to our second point, generosity. After verse 32 describes the, the, the church's unity, it goes on to describe the church's community. Unity turns into community. It says that they are of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. John Calvin, in his commentary on Acts chapter 4, uh, calls this the fruit that follows the root of doctrinal unity. This, this generosity, this radical sharing of one another's goods was the fruit of the root of doctrinal unity. I think that's a helpful way to, to see the nature of the community. It's not just existing by itself because it's made up of unique individuals who happen to be more generous. It is, it is the fruit that's produced by doctrinal unity. Doctrine isn't stale. You know, you, you probably have met people who think that when we start talking about theology and start talking about doctrine, oh, it's just kind of propositions. It's, it's stuff for the scholars and the theologians. And you put it in your mind and it starts building cobwebs in the back of your mind. No, that's, that's not what doctrine does. Doctrine isn't stale. Doctrine is alive. And it's producing fruit. And it's producing the kind of fruit that we see in Acts chapter 4 of radical generosity expressed in a radically loving community. Now, by radical generosity, we need to try to understand what's going on here. Because we, we meet people who, who do things with their wealth in the world and perhaps even outside of the church that are actually quite radical. We, we hear about billionaires giving away millions of dollars. Or we hear about millionaires giving away thousands of dollars. This kind of radical generosity is of a completely different nature than that kind of generosity. This kind of radical generosity comes from a complete reorientation behind how wealth and possessions are viewed fundamentally. Uh, this, this, this kind of radical generosity came from, from believers seeing their wealth and their positions as not even belonging to themselves. And so everything that they owned was on the table to give away for the good of others. And that included their most treasured possessions. That included their most secure possessions. Verse 34, we see, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. The early church, the early Christians were selling their most treasured possessions, their homes, their ancestral land. And we might do that for our children or grandchildren, and we might expect them to do that, but they were doing that to take care of their fellow members in the church. The result of this generosity was that there was not a needy person among them, not a single one. Not a single person was unable to provide for themselves. Not a single person was unable to pay the bills. Everyone was provided for. Now, I remember when I read these verses as a young Christian I remember thinking, this is communism. That, you know, Karl Marx, he, he got it right. 
He's the closest to Christian principles of society that I've ever encountered among all the different political ideologies out there. Communism is the right one. Now, thankfully, I didn't follow through with that. And since then, I've seen that there are many differences between communism and Christianity. But the only one that I want to bring to your attention today is that, is that what's happening here, what, what we're seeing in Acts chapter 4 among the, the early church, it was not forced upon them. It was voluntary. Communism is different. Communism is forced sharing. If you don't give up your proprietary rights to the state, for the state to distribute as it wants, you will be put in jail. It is the law to share in communist countries. But, but what's happening here in the Christian community is, is that no one's telling the Christians that they have to do this. No one's forcing them to do it. They're doing it of their own free will. Now, we know that because of what happens in Acts chapter 5. Uh, we, we don't have the text printed here. I'll just tell you the story. In Acts chapter 5, a couple, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, they tried to take advantage of this culture in the Christian community in order to boost their personal profiles. And so what they do is they sell their land and uh, they give some of that money to the apostles to distribute, uh, leaving the impression that they're giving all of the proceeds of the land to the apostles, when in reality they have actually kept a portion of the proceeds for themselves. Now that's what the Bible calls hypocrisy. It was, it was hypocrisy. Ananias and Sapphira were faking it. They were pretending to be one thing when they were actually another. When Peter confronts them about this, he says this in Acts 5 verse 4, and this is, this is revealing. He says, while it remained unsold, that is the land, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? So Peter's saying to Ananias and Sapphira that didn't, they didn't have to sell their land. And even after they sold their land, they had no obligation to give all the proceeds to the, to the apostles. If you know the story, uh, you'll know that Ananias and Sapphira were both punished by God by, by both falling dead, but it wasn't because they lacked generosity. It was because they lacked integrity. Now, this event with Ananias and Sapphira actually makes us see what was happening in the rest of the Christian community that much more remarkable. Their, their land, the, the land and the homes owned by the Christians remained their own, and they were under no compulsion to sell them. No one was telling them that they had to give. They were giving freely of their own accord to their brothers and sisters in Christ as they had need. Well, I think we also, it'd be helpful for us to note that not everyone was selling everything at the same time. They, they still needed homes because they were meeting in houses to, for their church gatherings. They, they needed their homes to raise their families. They needed their homes to practice the biblical command of hospitality. But when they saw that their brothers and sisters in Christ were in need, and there was no other way for those who are in need to be provided for. They were willing. And some of them actually did take the step of selling their homes or their lands to provide for their needs. My friends, this, this was the fruit of their doctrinal unity, a unity that centered on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, the resurrection of Christ created such a radically new community that no one had any lack. Everyone was provided for. What, what we actually see is that the Christians were treating one another as family. 
They were treating one another as family, and that's not just a, a sentimental metaphor. You know, we can, it's, so, it's so easy to say that we're a church family. It's a, it's a much harder thing to actually live like it. You know, who of us, if you're a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent, you know, wouldn't do whatever it takes to provide for your family members? We, we would do whatever it takes. But the question that, that our text poses to us is, would we be willing to do whatever it takes to provide for our spiritual family as well? We are a spiritual family in the same sense as we are biological families with, with our children and our grandchildren. And that is because the church belongs to Christ. The church belongs to Christ and, and Christ has purchased us with his own blood. And his desire is that, that we who belong to him would all be one. In fact, Jesus identifies so closely with the church that he calls the church his own body, his own body. And we all know what it means for us to love our own bodies. If our bodies have needs, we meet those needs. If our bodies are hungry, we feed them. If our bodies are cold, we clothe them. If our bodies are sick, we treat them. If we take care of our own bodies, how much more will Christ take care of his body? Jesus will provide for his body. And one of the ways he does that is through each one of us, as the body takes care of itself. He calls us to love his body in the same way that he loves his body. If we are his, and, and we are his, if we trust in Christ and we've been united to him by faith, then we also belong to one another. And no one's going to force us to give our money away. That's not the point. That's not, the, that's not what was happening in the early church. Just, Jesus doesn't need us to take care of his body. He will take care of his body with or without us. The point here is that those who truly believe in the death and resurrection of Christ, those who are of one heart and soul with, the, with their fellow believers in Christ, will sacrificially and joyfully do whatever it takes to provide for their brothers and sisters, even if it means laying down their wealth and their possessions. Now, we haven't had many opportunities to do that because we live in such a prosperous country. The reality is, and this is something that we are grateful for, is that we just haven't had very many practical needs as individuals and as families. But that is all changing. Those opportunities are going to increase as the pandemic spreads and as economic depression spreads. Our economy is going to result in more and more of us losing our jobs, and there will be needs. And the challenge for us as a church and as, as believers in Christ won't just be meeting those needs. It'll, it, the challenge will also be sharing those needs with one another. Because the reality is no one likes to say that they are needy. All of us like to be self-sufficient. And we don't want to acknowledge uh, that we need the help of other people. But the beauty of Christian community is that you can share your needs without being judged without the fear of condemnation, without feeling that you have somehow failed. Because as we see here, there were, there were Christians in the early church who were in need, and they needed one another to help them through their tough economic times. You can share your needs without the fear of being judged. 
You know, you can think about how ridiculous it would be if your leg was hurting and you responded to that pain in your leg by saying, oh, oh, leg, you are so weak. I can't believe that you're in pain. I mean, I'm not in pain, but you're in pain. Come on, you know, you need, you need to just you know, buckle up your bootstraps and, and uh, suck it up and, and be stronger. No, that, that's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous notion for us to judge our own body. In the same way, it would be ridiculous of us to judge the needs and the, and the, the, the pains and, um, you know, the, the fact that people need help um, within the church. We are, we are one. We are one body. And Christ has called us to care for one another as one. Now, we want to be characterized by our unity. And we want to be characterized by our generosity. And lastly, we want to be characterized by our testimony. By our testimony. Verse 33, it says, With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I love reading about the early church because it shows us how the church was built. It, it didn't, we're not meant to just see the numbers and say, wow, God's going to bring revival. We're, we're meant to see how God was building the church step by step. It, it started with unity, oneness of heart, oneness of soul. And then as they grew in unity, they grew in generosity as they were caring for one another. And as the community of believers was building itself up in love. And as they grew in generosity, then they also grew in their testimony. The testimony that Christ is indeed risen from the dead. What verse 33 does, its placement within Luke's uh, description of the early community, is he's showing us that, that the apostles' witness wasn't separate from the strength of the community. It wasn't separate from the life of the church. In fact, it was dependent on it. The reason why the apostles were able to give their testimony with such boldness and with power and with effectiveness is because the church was standing behind them. You could say that the power of our testimony comes from the strength of our community. The power of our testimony comes from the strength of our community. And that's true for me or pastors like me who have been commissioned by God to be spokesmen for the gospel, who are given this ministry of speech to testify with our words that Christ is, is who was crucified and risen from the dead. It's also true of any of you, as you have opportunity to speak the gospel with your co-workers and for, with your family and with your friends, that the power of our testimony comes from the strength of our community. And that's not only true from the perspective of the one speaking, it's also true from the perspective of the one listening. You know, verse 33, you'll notice it says, great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. And on the one hand, you could, you could interpret that, I think, well, that this is God's grace upon them, providing for them. That's one possible interpretation. But I think the more accurate interpretation would be to see it as favor from the outside world. We actually see that in uh, Luke's other description of the early church in Acts chapter 2. He says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and, listen, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see that word there, having favor. That word favor is the Greek word charis. And charis is the word for grace. The, the early church had the grace of the community around them. 
And the, the community was listening and receiving the message of the gospel with favor because of the strength of the community in the church. The listeners were, 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 were listening with greater interest because the, the doctrine that was being proclaimed was, was adorned. It was clothed, the good works of Christ's people. My friends, if we want our message to be credible, you could put it simply like this. We, we can't just talk the talk. We need to walk the walk, especially in times like this. We, we, we need to take care of one another in the same way that we would take care of our own families. We need to lay down what is good for us, for the good of those around us. We, we need to respond to the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ with radical acts of generosity so that no one would be needy. All of us would be provided for. Our text today ends with a case in point. Verses 36 and 37 shift the spotlight from the church as a whole to this uh, one individual named Joseph, who is more commonly known as Barnabas. Now, if you know the book of Acts, you'll know that Barnabas is one of Luke, the writer of Acts. He's one of Luke's heroes. He, he loves talking about Barnabas, and he loves talking about what Barnabas did. Um, Barnabas was uh, an incredible man of faith, and he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was appointed by God to be one of the first missionaries sent out by the early church to be the Apostle Paul's companion in bringing the gospel to many places in the ancient world. But our text today shows us that before he did any of that, before he was this kind of this globe trotter, this world traveler, verse 36 says that he was known as the son of encouragement. He was the son of encouragement. He, he lifted people up. And one of the ways that he did that was by helping his brothers and sisters in need. He was one of the first to sell his field, to sell his property, and entrust the proceeds to the apostles so that the church could meet the needs of anyone who could use it. Barnabas was a man who didn't just speak. He acted. He, he lived out the message he proclaimed with radical acts of generosity. And he set an example for Christians across the ages. He, he set an example for us. I think this, this is especially directed to Christian leaders. Uh, Barnabas was a Christian leader, and he's showing us the integrity of his life, that he was willing to walk the walk. But it, it's true for all of us, because the closer any of us becomes like Barnabas, the closer we will become like Jesus. Because Barnabas's passion in life was to imitate his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Like Barnabas, Jesus didn't just come to teach. Jesus came to give. But unlike Barnabas, Jesus didn't have a field to sell. You know, Jesus said himself, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You know, Jesus lived his, his, his entire adult life, his ministry, relying on the charity of other people. But though Jesus didn't have a field to give, he had something far more precious, something infinitely more valuable and that was his life. Jesus gave us the greatest gift of all when he willingly went to the cross to die for our sins. So that everyone who, who turns from their sins and repentance and turns toward God through faith in Christ can be forgiven and reconciled to God. But though Jesus died, 
We know, we believe that God raised him from the dead and he has given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. My friends, if you are here today and you're not sure what you believe about Jesus this this Sunday morning, if you're not yet a Christian and you're kind of feeling your way towards who God is and what he, he might want from you, I want you to know, I want to join my voice with the early church that Christ is risen. Jesus, who, who died and who was buried, he, he lives again. And I, I don't just know that because I, I've seen it. I haven't seen it. I wasn't there. I know that because Jesus has changed my life. Jesus is as real to me as any of you are to me. Now, there are many convincing historical arguments uh, to prove that Jesus did indeed physically rise from the dead. And those arguments are helpful. If you have questions about whether this is true, whether you can believe it, I encourage you to, to read some of that. You can find it online or you can read Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel was a, a journalist in Chicago who was an agnostic. Um, his wife converted to Christianity and uh, he, he wanted to do the investigative work of a journalist uh, to see whether the Christian claim that Jesus rose from the dead was historically plausible. And, uh, and he ended up becoming a Christian himself, and he collected his uh, investigation into a book called The Case for Christ. I, I invite you to, to pick up a, book, uh, a copy of that book on your Kindle or to order it. I know, you know, if you order anything on Amazon now, it's like the shipping is delayed by a month. That's been very inconvenient for me. I've been looking for books to read, and uh, I've settled on reading some old books that I still have in my house. But, but, but read. And, and see that there are historical arguments for the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as, as you engage in that intellectual exercise, uh, I want to encourage you to do that, knowing that there are millions of people all around the world. Um, and there, there, are, there are multitudes of people, even in Canada, your fellow neighbors, you know, educated, reasonable people, like, like the people on this call, who believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, in having God himself vindicate him as the son of God and as the savior of the world, he has proven to people around the world and across the millennia that he is worthy of our belief. I encourage you to consider this Jesus, to seek him and to know him, and to join us in the beauty and love of Christian community, in oneness of heart and soul, uh, that you may encounter Christ in the body of Christ. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, I want to, first of all, commend you for your abundant, radical generosity. Uh, our church is full of generous people. In fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, my tag was, was raising some money for a grocery gift card for a family in need. And, uh, and uh, you know, I had to hold people back from giving too much. Uh, you know, we ended up raising about $600, uh, but I had two people, individuals, both offer $500 each. And I said, okay, you, you got to pace yourself, all right? There, there's going to be other needs, and uh, we're going to need to spread that around a little bit. This need, particular need is not urgent. Uh, but, but that's the kind of generosity that we have in our church, that we, we care for one another in, in radical, self-sacrificing ways. I want to I commend you. I want to tell you that I am grateful for how so many of you are, are generous to one another and, and to the lost. 
you have you have given of your time and your resources and your energy to reach out to people in self-sacrificing ways. And in that way, you, you are being like Jesus. You are being like Jesus and you are showing the world what Jesus is like. As this pandemic spreads, we know that the needs will spread as well. And, and we as Christians will be called upon more and more to give generously and to give sacrificially. And I, I know, I am confident that, that you will rise to the occasion. And as you do, I want you to know that your giving won't just be providing for people's needs. Your giving will be strengthening the testimony of our faith, that Christ is risen. The risen Christ is building this community, and he is fundamentally changing the way that we view the wealth and possessions of this world. And so may, may God grant us the same great power and the same great grace that the early church had as they testified to the resurrected Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for freeing us from slavery to the world, from greed, from selfish ambition, from the hoarding up of, of wealth and possessions for our own need freeing us from that so that we could show the same love that Christ has shown to us in giving of ourselves to the good of others. We pray that that, that spirit, that heart would, would expand and fill our church so that we could be able to say with the early church that there was not a needy person among us. And we pray that our, our witness of unity and generosity, uh, that witness would go forth with power to save the lost, and bring more people into our community, not, not for our sake, but for yours, for, for your glory and your glory alone. Use this time of need, Father, to, to send forth the message of the gospel with power to save across our nation, across our world, across our community. May, may you be glorified as you call more and more people to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.